Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech and offshore renewables and the way that we harness natural resources to meet our future energy needs. My name is Claire Canning, OWGP Programme Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading technology, innovation and research centre for the offshore renewable energy industry. Energy generation is changing and the UK is leading the shift to a clean energy economy while simultaneously creating significant investment opportunities. Under sector deal plans, the value of UK exports is set to increase fivefold to 2.6 billion by 2030. There are also opportunities for further growth due to the development of new European, Asian and US offshore wind projects that will help the global market swell to the value of 30 billion annually by 2030. Behind this world-leading status in offshore wind is a stable policy and regulatory framework that provides long-term direction and supports innovation. In this month's podcast, we have a panel of guests who will help us examine the export opportunities that are available for UK businesses operating in renewable energy and offer advice for SMEs looking to expand their presence internationally. Let's start with introductions. I'm Jim Spartans, I'm Head of Research Business Development for the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult based in our Blythe Research Centre. Primarily my role involves developing new uh, research projects and programmes with UK SMEs and larger companies uh, looking at uh, the European and, and more broadly the global offshore wind market. Uh, Bruce? My name is Bruce Clements. I work as a specialist in the renewable sector team in the Department for International Trade. I'm focused on uh, overseas exports. Prior to joining as a specialist, I'm not a civil servant. I worked in business development at a company from early stages to uh, uh, later growth. That was called Seawind. David? My name is David Brenler. I'm CEO of Brenler Engineering, and my role is to sort of uncover innovation that we can apply from an inspection and machine learning point of view to offshore turbines. Uh, our particular focus has been on um, on blades over the last few years, but recently we've been looking more at the subsea structures on offshore turbines. Thanks, David. And last but not least, Ben. I'm the CTO and founder of uh, Anacarta Wind Turbines, and uh, we are aerodynamic optimization specialists for rotor blades, um, and that's uh, really about the design of the blades and also add-ons that you can put on the blades to boost uh, more power. Also, lots of aerodynamic uh, strategies and services to maintain the blade uh, performance over the life, especially in very harsh environments like uh, the offshore environment. Thanks very much, Ben. I guess, first of all, we could talk about the current UK export environment and try and kind of set the scene of what the current environment is like for offshore renewable energy in the UK. So I'd be quite keen to get everybody's thoughts and opinions on where do you think the UK is leading in exports? Is there anything particularly strong in? And if there's any kind of target markets considering for UK export opportunities? So I guess I might invite Bruce to comment on that, first of all. Any kind of areas you think the UK is leading on when it comes to offshore renewables? Oh, just set the scene in a way. I mean, the government had a clear vision for offshore wind from about 2008 in terms of policy. And we've now got a sector deal with obviously some uh, announcements yesterday by Boris Johnson on the investment. The sector deal kind of commits to a 40 gigawatt pipeline in, in the UK. Um, already the UK is at 10 gigawatts, which is about a third of worldwide installed base. 
the sector deal. This is the deal between the government that was by the business uh, department and the industry has committed to 40 gigawatts, but it's also committed to investment in the supply chain and uh, an export target as well over the next 10 years. That's sort of, if you like, the policy background. On the day-to-day, the UK has some developers and some tier ones, but it doesn't have all the companies that it could do as the major companies. And if I was on the company side, that's a useful mechanism to get on the back of those to go into an export situation. When we started in wind, this is uh, probably about a decade ago, the cost of energy was was quite high. It was all based on government subsidy and uh, it required the government support to get to a certain level. And what's really great about the UK is that they've come in and given all this support. And over that time, the innovation has happened really fast. And what you can see now is that the cost of energy for wind is lower than the cost of traditional um, energy sources. So actually, it's, it stands on its own two feet. And the great thing about that is that the UK now has a supply chain set up, which it doesn't have all the players. It's, you know, it's got some bits that are missing, but it does have a large, a large chunk of it. And it was done whilst the whole innovation was occurring. So from an export point of view, the UK is, first of all, a great place to be because there's all these businesses doing this stuff with great government support. But secondly, as the industry changes from one which has been supported by subsidies to driven by uh, just market economics, that's going to accelerate. And having that base here, it's been quite interesting to see it sort of evolve. So the next big markets that I see emerging is the US, um, which will pick up because that's just been driven by market price and being based out of the the uk to leverage off what's been done here is is quite exciting actually there's a lot of potential there so i i I guess i take a view that the the market dynamics have really shifted now and that's the chance to to leverage off what's been done so far it is gone from niche to mainstream david yeah yeah i mean you know 15 years ago turbines were 150 kilowatts and big clunky things that uh, required loads of maintenance and today they're, they're massive and you know they generate loads of power and they're getting still cheaper so the curve is actually even going to get better as you can probably tell from my accent i'm from australia where they haven't supported the renewable industry and we actually see that the support here is has really put the uk on the on the front foot with being able to take advantage of the explosion of wind that's going to happen around the world now the uh, long tail of companies in all parts of the sectors from the UK is fantastic. So there's so many companies that have thrown their hat into the ring of the technology that's coming up. And yeah. as you said, the speed of change is immense, isn't it? Um, mm. the, the, when I started, the, the height of Big Ben for the turbines are now over the shard in terms of scale. And what's what's really interesting to me is, is how well the, the oil industry and all of the experience that was built up in offshore oil has then been able to be, it, obviously it's not a direct transition, but it has been able to be applied to offshore wind. So again, you've got all of this offshore expertise, which already existed in the UK that now can start to be exported to other parts of the world where where offshore is, is where the growth is going to be going forward. And in addition to the sort of offshore expertise that you mentioned, it's something the UK does well. Um, are there any other, I mean, James, you're obviously working at Catapult where it's the forefront of innovation and everything, you know, is there any other areas that you think are key markets for exporting and the UK is doing really well at the moment? Basically, over the last eight years, I've been at the Catapult, I guess I've seen 
quite quite a bit of uh, difference in, in terms of the technology within the sector. I think what we're seeing more and more of recently is the, the kind of buzzwords, if you like, of big data and novel robotics and advanced machine learning type technologies, which the UK has got a really good experience in and, and a lot of companies developing those sorts of uh, you know, analytical tools and algorithms are all coming to the Blythe Research Centre of the Catapult at the moment to do a range of trials. And we have a quite a large uh, research programme with GE who, who are obviously developing the, uh, the Halliard X next generation machine. And they're very focused on, you know, what, what technologies as we move further from shore can be utilised to drive down operational costs. So I would certainly say in terms of global export potential, the, the kinds of technologies that we develop in those areas, as well as the more traditional, you know, kind of O&M servicing and installation type servicing are, are really big growth sectors. And certainly in the, the kind of uh, engagements catapults had globally in China and in Taiwan, and also with uh, a lot of European research institutes, those more and more becoming the more prevalent technologies that um, owner operators and developers are looking at as well as the basic kit you need for installation and growth of offshore wind farm capacity. The other thing that's really interesting is as the energy mix is changing, so you're getting more batteries come online, the big baseload stations are becoming, um, there's more management involved in all of these technologies now and wind sort of fits into that quite nicely. It can be turned on very quickly. Um, it's not obviously quite as fast as a battery, but it's there's a, there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of that. Are you seeing much in the way of innovation and change in terms of how energy systems are managed as a whole? Is that something that's is coming up? Yeah, definitely. It's become more and more of a, a kind of a key issue, if you like. You know, we're kind of moving away from coal-fired power generation in the UK, nuclear has taken longer to come on stream. So if you think of the base load of energy, it's going to be gas, CCGT and offshore renewables. So, mm. so that means you've got a more intermittent load. So we need more clever energy systems or energy storage systems. And everyone at the moment is talking about hydrogen, you know, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, lots of different colours of hydrogen. But um, I think that kind of integration into the, into the grid system is clearly going to be a key challenge area and lots of companies are looking at demonstration of those sorts of technologies as well so battery storage novel hydrogen electrolyzer type technologies so i think more and more the the energy systems piece is going to be um, integral really to achieving that 40 gigawatts in, in the uk over the next decade it's interesting to note that uh, quite often the number of countries in an export place They'll ask about offshore wind because we've seen the price drop in the North Sea. But actually the issues over the future energy mix, where will the grid be, where will the population be, and things like that. So all those those uh, intermittency issues are a key export market, dealing with all the grid capacity and things like that. I mean, most of the grids, like the UK grid, has been designed for a few mass generators to go out now it's bringing in all the different inputs and that's the same in every single other market currently looking at uh, renewables and particularly offshore wind yeah i mean i think um like uh, everybody's been saying the the strengths of the uk um with which is knowledge-based service essentially and their engineering innovation that's really exportable product that surrounds the the growth of the industry so we're not trying to compete making uh, cheap widgets and selling them actually 
the UK is so well placed and, and obviously all the programs that have been put in place, the balance between resourcing innovation um, and funding R&D and subsidies is a difficult balance. Um, subsidies actually discourage innovation if they're applied incorrectly. And actually um, one part of the food chain we're talking about that has not really come on, like all the stuff that, that has grown around it, is the actual wind turbine hardware itself. If you look at the developments in the things that David's talking about in terms of the, the concepts of data management and, and, and grid and logistics and, and how to make the cost of energy cheaper via almost infrastructure around this hardware and how you use it operationally, um, that's all flying along. But actual machinery, the hardware of a wind turbine, there's still quite a lot of space to bring that forward. The UK is also very well placed for that as well given its engineering pedigree and really i mean from my point of view from a, a blades person you know we have the best aerospace and aerodynamics industry in the world in the uk um, i mean i come from formula one where they spend 10 times the amount on formula one cars than they do on developing wind turbine blades globally so that's just an advertising board going around circuit and here we're talking about saving the world it's a crazy place and, and yet still we've got these excellent programs that are linked up to help us. But I would say subsidies need to be better targeted um, and broken down to isolate and encourage this particular sectors within this really big thing. I mean, wind turbines, you know, as David was saying a few years ago, relatively small thing, put it up in a few days, hook it up and we're, we're away. And now we have these huge challenges about getting all this kit in the sea, getting the power out, withstanding the environment. There's so many more sectors to this now that I think they need to be tackled a little bit more individually. Um, that would be my only gripe about what we've seen and the support that we get from the government and uh, RTOs like uh, Offshore Catapult, which has been amazing for SMEs. Um, because small companies to access large machinery and make a difference uh, you, you do need to hold hands with a lot of people and to make that happen and it's really impressive the efforts that have been made this leads into the next point of discussion actually it'd be quite interesting to get more detail or an account of your export journey for anakata and david for, for brainler engineering and um, obviously both companies are doing quite different things different stages of, of your own export journeys so it'd be quite interesting to get your perspective on how well this has gone what made you choose exporting was it the next right step and any kind of particular challenges or obstacles that you've had and then you've kind of touched on some of those our export journey has been a roller coaster first as anybody's journey is away from their comfort zone of homeland it's really been facilitated for us um, by Offshore Renewable Catapult and Innovate UK, two groups, and the ENN network. Really those programs, if you meet the right people and meeting the right partners and identifying that they're the right partners and that they have aligned interests with you, because you're going to need a presence in that region, we were facilitated in accessing the Chinese market for um, our rotor blade add-on furniture, which uh, improves the energy output from wind turbine. And the reason that uh, China is uh, such a good target for a small company like Anakata is because the, the, the market is obviously massive and the 
potential now for the growth in their offshore industry and the amount of resource they're throwing at it is huge and just really beginning. So we can use a lot of the things that we already know from our work in the UK. But more importantly, when you're going through technical trials and trying to develop new new products in order to gain sales and, and start to penetrate the market, um, different regions have different levels of barriers against that. And um, in China, it's quite straightforward to really go and develop something and get it up there and get the results. And there's quite a proactive attitude um, in terms of slightly less risk mitigation requirements involved, i.e. they're prepared to take more of a risk on things. Mm. And, and that's actually very good for technical development. Uh, wind turbine industry is extremely conservative, extremely risk averse. And we need more brave companies to go forward and trial stuff. There's a lot of red tape that the industry has put up around itself to create standards. But while you're developing things, standards are not always the first thing in your mind if you're going to break a new technology barrier. And I think other regions have an appetite, a different appetite for new technology. So we might see UK as, or or some European countries as going with historical record of that company, of that hardware. And that's what the sales are driven by. But we actually see in, in places like China and the US for us, that the technology side is far more of a driver than let's say some of the, the other more assurance side of things. And this is because the money comes still from the pension funds, the wind farm asset owners, the wind farm developers. So it's cautious money. And that's to buy hardware. Other regions have a more aggressive attitude and those kind of entities are prepared to take more of a risk. And and that's why different markets are prepared to accelerate different technologies in a different ways, or one of the reasons. We've made the connections with the right like-minded companies in, in China particularly, and that's been facilitated by the TUS ORE Talk Catapult based in China. We have a, a joint venture there. Um, all of this was facilitated with the ORE. We're moving forward very fast. We now are on top level um, sales discussions with uh, some of the biggest companies in China, um, which are obviously some of the biggest companies in the world. And that's been more accessible than actually some of the European manufacturers of wind turbines. Mm. I I think it's timing as well that you're looking at your regions. I just hope the world gets out of the mode of following subsidies around the world and subsidies driving everything because it's not the answer. It's got to be applied correctly and switched on in the right places and switched off at the right time. And, And efficiency will then win. And efficiency wins... UK will be fine because we do really good stuff. Before I move on to David, I wondered if, Bruce, if you had any comments on that or anything, obviously from a DIT perspective. Yeah, very interesting listening to David and Ben's exporting focus. Going from my own SME background, we were following basically where the principal larger markets were and the large companies that were in the North Sea area then took us into the Baltics and took us into Asia-Pac. And correspondingly, China was a harder market to actually crack than was a market like Taiwan or Japan and and Korea. So that's a really interesting perspective. In terms of growth, we're just at the beginning. And that's what kind of Ben's pointing out, really. 
we're at what 30 gigawatts now uh, arena said that it's going to be a thousand gigawatt market so for Ben to kind of push into these new markets um, and actually develop some scale in China and in the US, it means that other markets will be able to be opened up and, and made possible. The cost thing that David mentioned earlier is as the cost comes down, we're seeing more markets open up. And so the more you can actually drive, so, so Ben's driving up yield, and if that yield can be driven up, and we need to, I think we need to get over 60%, that suddenly opens up a a uh, whole new range of investment, certainly back in the North Sea, from the technology that is clearly working at scale in, in, in China. So it's a global market and you've got to be globally competitive. And then that way, then whenever the market opens up, you can e- exploit it. Those companies remaining within the UK or the North Sea environments um, have really got to get over, overseas further, really. Okay, David. Give us some information on brain engineering and how you found your sort of journey through the export market. Well, we're uh, we're quite an odd case because we've actually come from Australia originally and then exported out of Australia um, initially to Denmark, of all places. So we went to Denmark, did a tour around, had a lot of interest and actually ended up setting up the company there and, and moving there to set up office, head office there and run from there. Being based in Europe to try and export technology from Australia was the right step because the support there is very low uh, and the industry is quite small. But interestingly enough, in Denmark, it was also a challenge because there's a sort of a cultural barrier to doing business with if you're non-European. We were reasonably successful, but that was actually a surprising challenge. Like there is a a preference for, for doing business with local businesses if it's possible. So even though it's, a, it's a sort of a global enterprise, you're dealing with large businesses, um, we did come up against that challenge. And our, our move to the set up the office in the UK, which was 2017, was actually driven by a desire to be in an area where we could really relate to people and, and build those relationships. Um, because at the end of the day, all sort of export success is basically driven by relationships and you have to find the right people to talk to. Obviously, you've got to have the right technology to fit those people's needs. You can't get anywhere without the right relationships. So the, the challenge in all of this is actually the technology side is interesting. It's, it's, it's something that's obviously you've got to get right. Um, but the actual challenge in coming into a market and trying to export it into a new market given that we've done it a couple of times is always finding the right people in the right network. And that's what I, I see as the challenge now as UK companies try to take their business to the US. Uh, I suspect there'll be a similar thing there where there's a preference to deal with local US companies. And this is where I think, uh, you know, organizations such as Catapult can really help to actually um, facilitate those kind of uh, introductions and those, those connections. And I know that there's some great work being done there, but more than anything, it's, it's finding access to the right people um, in export markets to try and showcase what you've done, get a, a reasonable hearing with, with what's there and then have a chance to actually to demonstrate it. It's very hard to do that initially in a, in a new market such as, such as China. So Ben, for you guys to get you know, the introductions that you have and to have some success there, it's, I don't know. I mean, did you find it came down to having a couple of really good conversations with the right people that really triggered that? Yeah, in a nutshell, I think your own ability to to identify what you're looking for is quite important because I think when you start on that road, I mean, you've said it, the first time you go through this, everybody's got an opportunity for you. You know, you're putting resource into progressing opportunities. There's a finite amount, especially with a small company. Um, And the choice of the partner and actually 
understanding what they can uh, give to the program. And it's not always funding or massive amounts of, the, of their own resource. It's really about understanding the product and the commercial model and the market and the target and all the same normal things about business. But of course, the cultures are different, mm. as, as you said. Um, so for us, one thing that our JV does is it really helps us have a common culture. You know, we're understanding um, certainly the, from the Chinese side um, how business is done and it is different and you've got to go through it. But as I said, for us, the benefits that we've identified quite early on for a company that was emerging through a proof of concept stage and the biggest sales benefit of all was just getting more of our kit out on big turbines. Hmm. Um, that was quite difficult and challenging to do in Europe and much more straightforward to do in China because the people that we were, we were partnering with, they could, they could pull those strings and then we could move through the process very quickly because everybody had the appetite to look at new technology. Yeah, and you mentioned risk, and I think that's a key thing because in China and, and in the US as well, there's, a, there's more of an appetite for risk. So if someone likes something, they'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, you've lost some money and no big deal. People are prepared to move quicker there. There's an interesting balance here, isn't there, between technology and a secure investment environment. So one of the success factors that the UK has had is made the contracts are secure, uh, investors know what they're buying, um, and that has actually provided quite a nice platform in which making a clear pipeline possible and a, and a clear industry possible. Mm. So that's the upside of that, if you like, David, that more conservative financial contracting environment. The downside, as you're pointing out, is technology is a, has a longer lead time in order to be proven. And possibly there's a middle way, and that probably comes back to, I don't know which one of you made the point, but as you, Ben, I think, about picking your markets. So you probably need to have a foot in both sorts of markets, one in terms of the scale secure markets, and also having something a little bit more experimental in kind of other markets. And coming back to, I think, one of your questions, Claire, was, you know, why export? And you're basically, from a business point of view, mitigating some of your risk. Ben talked about the different cycles. I mean, certainly one of the reasons when I was at Seawind in business development, we ended exporting 70%. But one of the reasons was there was a change of subsidy regime in the UK. So there's a massive fall off in construction. And then unless we pushed hard overseas, there would be a massive change in our clients. So you need multiple markets and basically subsectors within that in order to kind of drive your sales. I mean, the other reason to export is it's one of the beauty of the offshore wind industry is pretty much every turbine's compared to other things, they're pretty much the same. So if you've done something with the one turbine, you know, you tend to be able to re replicate it again and again. So really, the, you know, the goal of all this is to actually use the local market to get what your technology to a point where you, you know that it's, it's, it's good and that you can support it at distance. And then you really can scale it quickly, particularly with markets like China and, uh, and, and upcoming the US. But... That is a really nice thing about this industry is that having got it right on one turbine, it's much easier than other industries to scale. I mean, before we were doing work in renewables, we were doing work in production lines in factories and every single production line was separate. It was different. You know, it was a real challenge. Whereas you walk into a turbine, you, you, sometimes you don't know which turbine you're in because they all look identical to a large extent. So that's a real benefit as I see. Great. So, I mean, I think it's been quite interesting discussion on what some of the 
the barriers to export, I guess, have been in terms of that, you know, building those relationships and cultural barriers and, and appetite for risk. I think it'd be quite interesting to hear a bit more about the types of support available for companies or SMEs in particular that are looking to export. But I want to bring in James, um, you know, from an ORI Catapult perspective, what do you think is being done in terms of helping SMEs? Um, obviously, the, the TUS uh, ORI venture has been brought up. I mean, could you give us a bit more information on that and what happens? Yeah, yeah sure. I think, um, I, I think it's different for, for different types of companies. So... SMEs obviously face a greater challenge. Obviously, you've got a whole government department for international trade who, who will kind of support and have that global network. I think from a, a kind of research and technology national centre like we are, there's a few key areas that, that are pretty critical to supporting that kind of export potential. So I guess one that um, has been discussed a little while ago is kind of de-risking that technology. So often... Equinor or EDF and a five-man company approaches them, they're probably not likely, it's safe to say, always to, to make that purchase without some level of confidence that the technology is being validated and de-risked. So I guess where Catapult come in, you know, we own and operate a seven megawatt test and demonstration turbine and we've tested tons of different technologies on it from subsea inspection technologies, the likes to Rovco, which is exporting globally, um, to, to the drone inspection technologies and condition monitoring sensor technologies. And then in our kind of drivetrain test facilities, we've got a kind of unique capability really to look at some of the subcomponents. So I think Ben mentioned earlier that really to get above this 60, 70% kind of, you know, UK content barrier, we probably need to start getting into the turbine components a bit more as well. So how could we manufacture a novel generator or something, for example? So what we really need to do is um, de-risk that before the likes of a major OEM or owner-operator developer wind farm will get close to it. One thing we can do is, is de-risk. I think the, the second thing the catapult does is um, we have a good interface with a lot of the utilities who are developing these wind farms. I work quite closely with Equinor and EDF on, on some of their research projects. And if you look at internationally, um, you know, the Empire State Project is basically Equinor. EDF are developing wind farms in China as well. So these kind of companies have got a global reach. So if, if you can get in and demonstrate your technology and have someone to facilitate that interface, then I think that's pretty critical. And I think the other final aspect is um, moving on to your point about why did we set up a research centre in China? Views on China, it's safe to say, are mixed. Some companies you speak to might think, well, that's massive IP leakage. I've lost everything there. Other companies uh, like Ben's see it as a great opportunity to be at the forefront of a new market. You know, it's the world's second largest economy, arguably soon to be the first in some people's um, analysis. So I think we set up that research center out there with a joint venture partner with the explicit interest of developing these applied research relationships internationally. So We've done that in China, um, but we're also working with Innovate UK and the Department of Energy in the US on setting up uh, joint research projects there, working with a few uh, UK companies who are working on sensor technology and other types of technologies. And I think that applied research and demonstration to me acts as a precursor for an expo because, you know, if you were going to develop something, test it and demonstrate it, you need to go through all those phases before you can actually start selling something. So I think um, doing that internationally in the market that you want to get into 
is clearly going to kickstart that process. So I think, um, yeah, de-risking technology, sort of international engagement and um, that interface with the end user and operator is, is kind of the package that we can offer to support as well as all the Innovate UK government funding and DIT international support. And I think all of that together collectively, actually, if we push a bit more post-Brexit in the, in the grand vision of uh, the Prime Minister, then, then certainly I think uh, we can have a lot more success in the global market. You touched on DIT support there. Bruce, is there anything you want to add in terms of support, maybe from a government perspective, available to SMEs? So from a sector team point of view, we take companies overseas. Uh, I was then part of that, that process. The other side, local posts in overseas markets have uh, pretty good access. Uh, we've got 20 or 30 companies now set up in Taiwan, for example, and the British office there has done very, very close work with a lot of companies there and has the introductions that they've been made possible. Certainly, I use that facility myself. There's another sort of people around called uh, International Trade Advisors, ITAs. They work with SMEs and they're local uh, for people to connect to them. They are generalists, but they can connect into the different opportunities. There's obviously the uh, local ORE catapult people, but there's also UK Export Finance. UK Export Finance is making a big push towards renewables. They have uh, local export finance people. So export finance can support companies are exporting they can support the buyers buying uk goods they've actually supported three wind farms now on a project finance basis in helping the finance and putting uk content in there and that's going to be a uh, an ongoing piece then obviously there's the feedback that people like david and ben would would give us um like smes actually in the world I have, we have to pick our battles too, because we can't be in all the markets doing everything. It's actually to identify where the most impact can actually happen. So that feedback from the sector is really appreciated. And just, I guess, to, to finish off that point, I'm happy to invite Ben and David. Is there any other kind of support mechanisms that you guys have experienced that, you know, that were useful for you and that we haven't touched on already? The Innovate UK has been fantastic in terms of supporting uh, innovation that takes a little while to come through. And that actually bridges the gap between stuff that requires developments that need to be tested properly. You know, you can get the funding that actually helps you to do that without needing to fund it all yourself. So that that support is invaluable. I think also there's a number of the, the networking events um, that are set up is, is really great. What's been interesting is to see, um, I've talked before about how networking, is, I think, is a, is a real sort of key thing. And the challenge in this sort of um, post-COVID-19 world to go to conferences or to talk to people and meet people, it becomes a lot more difficult. So one of the things that has been interesting is to see how well the online conferences have been working. There has been really a lot of innovation there. But I would say that's an area that where there could be further improvement to help connect, which previously you used to be able to do by just walking around talking to people. There's um, some good processes in place, but some events are sort of the format works better than others. So I think that's an area where a small effort would make a big impact. That brings us on to our final point about what, what more could be done in, in the sector and, you know, looking to other industries like automotive, oil and gas. Are there any best practices that we could be exporting, that we can bring to exporting technology and services for the offshore renewable sector? And I've raised what IRE Catapult is doing a little bit on the, the taking the Fit for Aerospace programme and then bringing that across 
into fit for renewables, that long-term supply chain development, I think, is kind of useful. I was speaking to a cable company. There's obviously a set of cable expertise in the UK. And there's about 10 or 12 companies all in the North Sea, all, all feeding off each other. So when clusters do develop, there's a mutual feed. And that is one of the, the pieces. When I was having a think about this, the other area that I think possibly and it will be down to the industry, would be maybe the con- contracting environment. The contracting environment, I think David and Ben both mentioned it, the whole industry is going through such a change. The technology is changing, the way wind farms are put in, the contracts are changing, the way risk is considered is, is changing. Um, oil and gas went through a, a long maturing process, and we haven't had that maturing process yet within the the renewable sector and and some maturing of that might actually help to actually provide more opportunities because it take it takes away some doubt maybe ben or david want to comment on that obviously um echoing everybody's comments about the support actually being excellent and i'm sure compared to other SME technology developers uh, trying to export stuff in other countries we are in such a good position but risk is the driver for a lot of technology. And I think a specific offshore renewable government supported type of uh, risk platform that would allow uh, smaller technologies and any technologies to actually be trialed. Um, because at the moment, insurance underwriters obviously having a hard time, lots of uh, global things going on that, that really aren't helping their business. Um, Why should we be having the wildfires in California affecting our ability to develop technology? Because that's what's happening. There needs to be something specific. It needs to be government backed. It needs to be so assured that um, people can get on and do what they have to do. I spend a good proportion of my days trying to risk mitigate, trying to get hold of insurance brokers who will give me um, a policy to do something. Sometimes you can't even get it because... A, it's a wind turbine. B, it might be in the sea. C, it's actually quite new technology as well. Now, you know, they're just running a mile. And and actually, if you look at all the standards that you've hit in terms of IEC engineering and going through the process, it's all there. But there's still a lack of appetite um, for the people that own the hardware and are eventually going to make money out of these wind farms to actually back anything other than the kit they get from Siemens or Vestas or the big companies because there's a barrier, a real barrier. And I think that can be broken down. And I think we'd like to see the UK being one of the first countries to address that particular problem. It's the biggest problem in my business is risk assurance um, for machines that are already making a lot of electricity, making a lot of money. As technology developers, we, we all need backers behind us and that doesn't have to be selling your company to a big OEM just so that you can go forward Um, it's it's critical moments that need addressing and identifying those so I'd like to see more work being done in risk mitigation just to agree with Ben there I think um, that kind of risk mitigation is critical and maybe um, if you look at the the contracting mechanism for offshore wind farms in the UK where you get a CFD it's kind of driven a lot by reduced cost and um, you know reduced cost doesn't necessarily always bring pre-key innovation with it all the time so it may be that you know one mechanism might be to look at having an innovation CFD where the cost might be slightly higher 
but within that particular demonstration, the, the government's supporting some particularly novel technologies to accelerate them and de-risk them so that they've been demonstrated in an offshore environment and get to get to market more rapidly. So I think, um, yeah, there certainly may be some uh, tweaks to the to the support mechanism that that could accelerate future demonstration and therefore future exports. I actually think that kind of targeted like some some you know a pot to facilitate innovation specifically for that would enable these changes to kind of keep happening even when things are starting to stabilize. So I think that would be quite a crucial change. The other thing that we've seen that's interesting is that as industry matures, standards aren't there initially. So it becomes quite difficult to work without standards. And I don't know if there's anything that can be done about it. I think that that's maybe just part of it's, it's a challenge and an opportunity to work in an industry where it's not mature and the standards aren't as good as they as they are in oil and gas. And of course, it's rapidly getting better, but it, it has been a, um, both a challenge and an opportunity, as I've said, to do with without having common standards across different um, manufacturers or regions or it's very difficult. That is something which is um, opens up some options as well when you, when you can help people to set standards and... Um, but then you get caught in this whole standard war, which is, is a problem in itself. So I think the government, um, particularly the UK government, could potentially help there, but it's a difficult one. Can I just raise a, a market? We've heard about the US and China. We've got quite a lot happening, different kind of markets. Uh, Ireland next door has got a five gigawatt target by 2030. We've got uh, the Baltic States, Finland and Sweden also looking. Um, there may be other technology solutions to do, dealing with ice, dealing with cold weather, within these markets that are requiring less of a, a long-term trip. Uh, we're seeing more more things to do with more interconnected cables, certainly within Europe too, that are moving across again. There's been a, a lot of cable tech that's been going on. So I just wanted to sort of raise the flag. Even Australia now is getting on the on the wind farm um, market now, David. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's not, an, not enormous projects, but they're still coming on yeah so there's other markets outside uh, to people so so in asia pack quite a few companies are locating in taiwan and then exploring the other markets for example to, to try and get exporting scale james david ben and bruce thank you for taking part in today's episode it's now time to de-energize until next month in the meantime listeners can find out more information about ben's work at anakata on their website www.anakatawindpower.com and David's work at Brainler at www.brainler.com. You can learn more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.